Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, we speak with Casey Bell about what it means to teach writing with technology. Casey is the blogger and podcaster behind Shake Up Learning, and we find out that her first blog post from many years ago was entitled The Perfectionist with Paralysis. We talk about what it means to be a writer, a technology user, and how to find our voice in the digital world. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we get to speak with the blogger and podcaster at Shake Up Learning, Casey Bell. Casey is a former middle school language arts teacher, a Google uh, evangelist, I guess, for lack of a better term, and is certainly someone um, that has a strong voice uh, for elevating student voice and empowering teachers to use technology in smart, productive ways, especially as it relates to the teaching of writing. Welcome, Casey. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you. And as I mentioned a few moments ago while we were getting ready, I've been fortunate enough to have seen you present at ISTE. Um, I've heard your podcast, read your work, and, um, you know, thinking about all these different ways in which educators present themselves. I'm going to be really curious to learn more about how you see yourself as a writer, and especially a digital writer um, in this day and age as you produce podcasts and other media. But before we get to all that, tell me just a little bit about your path. I know we have some uh, shared connections through the National Writing Project, and, and I'm really curious to know more about how you got to where you are today in the field of education. Sure. So I started out as a middle school language arts teacher, as you mentioned, and really, I loved the kids. I loved teaching. I was maybe not quite as passionate about the subject of language arts, but I loved integrating technology. And so that really drove me to get my master's degree in ed tech. And when I entered that program, I was like, these are my people. <laughs> these are the nerds that I have been looking for and really just kind of found my niche. And from there, I moved into a position as a digital learning coach and facilitating and delivering training and really focusing on that technology integration aspect. And that really is is my passion. I, I love teaching. I love kids, but I'm just as passionate about teaching teachers who are my students these days and really love technology. I, I geek out a lot. You probably can pick up on that <laughs> if you follow me at all. I am a bit of a nerd. I have lots of gadgets and I love learning new things and technology has always been part of my life. I grew up in a family that owned an electronics business and ran a drive-in and my mother was actually, uh, did some writing at the local newspaper and won some writing awards. So writing has also been a, a strong influence in my life as well. And I have to tell you, it's a skill that has come in handy. Like I, I didn't realize how, how much writing influenced what I was doing until later on. But as a English major in college, I, kind of ended up in English, I think, because it just came naturally to me and I was pretty good mm -hmm. at it. But at the same time, when I started blogging, that definitely came in handy. And as I develop all kinds of content and write courses and books and things like that, it, it's definitely been something I'm really glad I took the time to invest in 
And when I was going through that master's program that I mentioned earlier, part of my course credit actually came from going through the Central Texas Writing Project Summer Institute, which is how I got connected with the National Writing Project and have stayed connected to a lot of those people and especially at Texas State University where I got my master's. It's amazing. And, and you know, you, you've hit on so many things, but the one thing that you just mentioned a moment ago is about like this genre of blogging and the way in which writing takes different shapes and forms. And you are clearly a master at that. Um, I subscribe to your newsletter as do I'm sure thousands of other people. And I find that of all the things that hit my inbox, whatever your headline is, it's the one that I want to click on. So can you talk about that for just a bit more? And of course, I'd want to hear more about your, your perspective on teaching teachers, but just as a writer, uh, sure. what is it that you do? Um, and how do you, how do you understand the genre of writing for the web and writing for an audience of teachers and blogging and podcasting and those types of things? I think that's pretty interesting, too, because I, I struggle with the newsletter. I really try to keep those short and sweet, get to the point. But that's also how I am as a learner. Like, I don't want the fluff, like, get to the point. And I read very quickly, so I'm mostly a textual learner. And in fact, if I look at something online and watch a video, but if the text is below it, I can skim it and learn it so much faster than sitting through the actual real time of the video. And that's not how a lot of other people connect, you know, with the visuals. So, but from the writing perspective as a blogger, I appreciate the compliment because sometimes I feel like I, I'm really not that, that great. And sometimes I have to let the little things go because I want to get the information out. And because mm -hmm. I am sort of a one woman show, I don't have anybody else helping me, but I use a lot of digital tools to help me revise and catch mistakes and things like that. But I really was scared the first time I started to blog because I felt like it was saying, I'm somebody, look at me. And I didn't really feel like I was anybody that anybody else would want to listen to. In fact, my first blog post was called A Perfectionist with Paralysis. And because I wanted whatever I put out there to have this perfect look, this perfect voice, the writing to be perfect, the, the website itself to just, you know, be beautiful and ready to go and not look like an amateur. I really held myself back for several years. I wish I had started blogging earlier because it was something I started and stopped several times before I actually clicked the button. Mm -hmm. And it, I was really worried about how people would react to like, why does she think she's somebody? And that's not what blogging is about. And I think it's come a long way since then. But I really felt like other people were doing it so well. Why would anyone listen to me? But the reason I started blogging was because I feel like it's a powerful tool for the classroom. And I, in my trainings, I was talking to teachers about blogs they should read and follow, but also how to blog with students. And if I'm talking about it, I better be doing it. And so I practice what you preach kind of girl. And I jumped in there and I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to jump in and try to be a model for teachers so that they understand you don't have to be perfect to do this. Absolutely. And did that answer your question? Oh, it did. <laughs> okay, I, okay, I, I went around and around. <laughs> yeah, no. I, and I think, you, you, first of all, you, ha you have the right to be a, a little bit you know, excited because you've been obviously given great praise from other places, you know, such as Trusted and 
edgy blogs and places like that. So people obviously are listening, but I, I really want to pick up on that idea that you said, the perfectionist with paralysis. And I think whether it's with writing or it's with educational technology in general, many teachers feel that way. And, and I, I too try to, I struggle with that. Like I want to model and say, trust me, it's not like the old days. You can't really break it. You might hit undo or close a tab and start over, right? Like, how do you approach teachers uh, who are, might still be in that perfectionist uh, and, and a bit paralyzed in that state, whether it's with blogging or any of the other types of technologies that you try to introduce, and especially, again, as you're trying to help them help students elevate their own voices? Actually, you just reminded me that I wrote about this in my book, <laughs> so I was mm. looking it up. I have an, a, an entire chapter about this. It's share your voice and share your story. And that's where I kind of tell my perfectionist with paralysis story. And the power that we have to help each other, to learn from reflection, to learn by connecting, it cannot be undersold. So even if your goal is just to start a blog for yourself, that's okay. You know, that 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 writing and sharing your voice in a reflective way can be very powerful and it can be very powerful for our students. In fact, that's really where blogging sort of started was it was just an idea, you know, it's, it's a log of things that happen in a chronological order. So as it's evolved and as we look at how things have grown and, you know, people are constantly sharing and creating and doing lots of things and, that, and I'm one of them. And I'm trying to get the information out to help as many teachers as I can. And as someone who has an English degree, I do secretly think, oh my gosh, Troy is reading my newsletters. He's catching all the mistakes that I have, but they're out there. They're there. But you know what? That also makes me real. That makes me mm -hmm. a real person. It makes me relatable. And in fact, most teachers will tell me that the reason that they connect with me so much is because I'm just upfront, I'm honest, and I'm practical. I know how hard it is to be a teacher. I know we don't have time for all of the little perfectionist things to bog down our classrooms and to bog down our students. We need to have that room to fail. We need to know that it's okay that everything that we create is not always at this, you know, 100% perfection that we can create, that we can write, and that we can write in so many different ways. And I think that's what's fantastic about blogging in particular and podcasting is there's so many types of voices that we can share. And for me, I had been teaching for so long that my natural voice was that teaching voice, that how-to voice, explaining things. Mm -hmm. And so the technical writing experience that I had, in fact, I have taken a technical writing course many, many years ago, back when I was working on my undergrad, but that was something that came in handy and something that I became better at because I talk about it all the time. And so if it's something you can talk about, it's something you can write about. And that's, that's really important. I think that helps our students understand the power. And the other thing that I talk about in that share your voice, share your story chapter is the fact that every person listening to this podcast right now, every teacher, every student has something unique to share. And that should be valued. There is something we can learn from everyone. A kindergarten teacher can learn from a senior teacher and vice versa. Like there's so many strategies. There's so many things that happen to us. And a lot of times we just need to know that somebody else feels the same way that we do. And so we can help that. We can help with social emotional learning and we can make those connections. 
Oh, absolutely. And that certainly resonates with the broader philosophy of the National Writing Project that teachers are teaching teachers. And trust me, I am not that kind of English teacher. So I'm not uh, <laughs> marking up all your uh, newsletters with the virtual red pen. I, I oh, it's you. okay. I get, I, I mean, and, and what I tell people is that teachers, for the most part, are a very caring and supportive community. When you get out there and share your, your stuff, there are, there are going to be the weird people who decide to correct you, but those are few and far between. You're much more likely to find this loving, supportive community because guess what? Teachers are pretty good people. <laughs> right, exactly. So one of the things that I'm very curious to hear your perspective on is as someone who has this language arts literacy background, has the ed tech background, and is probably inundated with 10,000 emails a month about new tools and services. What's the heuristic? What's the problem solving device or strategy or series of questions that you ask when you see something new? How is it that you make your decisions about any particular educational technology, whether that's a Google add-on or whether it's something outside of the Google um, ecosystem? Take us through your thought process as you, you click into a new tool. Sure. Well, I really look for those tools that are tried and true, that are generally free, and three, that help do something to support learning in the classroom or save teachers and students time. So those last two things are really the biggest. If I see something that looks really cool, but I can't tell you at all how it's going to support learning, how it's going to help a student reach a learning goal, then it's tech for tech. And I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to focus on the things that are really going to help us move that needle forward so that we can help our students learn the things they need to learn. That's what we're supposed to be using technology for in our classrooms. It's not just about, ooh, shiny object syndrome, which I, I get that too, <laughs> just because I am a bit of a geek. But at the same time, when I decide what I'm going to share with my readers, it has to be something great. And if it is something that's not free, I am very careful about that because teachers spend enough money on their own. And, but unless it's something I know is just fantastic and there's nothing else that's going to do that for free, or if I already know schools have invested in it and teachers just don't know about it, I will also promote that. But the other thing being that time saver, that's actually how I get buy-in in my trainings, is mm -hmm. showing teachers something that's going to save them time, something that's going to save them clicks, something that's going to make their life easier. And when I'm doing a workshop, especially if it's sort of one of those mandatory workshops that the teacher's in the back with their arms crossed and <laughs> they think, sure. oh, there's nothing I can learn from her. And then I show them something that drops their, you know, that their, their jaw drops and they're like, what? I didn't know you could do that. And then suddenly you're like, oh, this girl's got something that I need to listen to. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of things that I really look for because like I said, when I venture off of, of things that are not so practical, that may be a little more theoretical or research-based, I can lose the audience. And even though I'm a firm believer in research, I don't focus so much on getting into the nitty-gritty types of things that just getting down to the heart of the matter about what teachers need to know is what's important to them. 
we could have a whole other conversation about <laughs> being professional development and yes. we'll have opportunity to do that at some point. For the moment though, I, I'm interested in hearing a bit more about going back to this connection you just made, like yeah, you want to be able to see the learning. What, what are the wheels that are going to be spinning in kids' heads when they're using this tool? How are they going to get to higher level thinking and asking smarter questions and developing their own inquiry and things like that? So if you could paint a picture of what a, I hesitate to say perfect, but you know, an ideal perhaps middle school classroom where technology is being used effectively, students are engaged in reading writing processes, where they're sharing their voice, where they're having opportunities to collaborate. What might that look like? Uh, what are the teachers uh, with whom you're working? What are they doing? What have you seen? What would you like to see? Um, what would a writing workshop look like in this day and age as we think about all the tools that are available? I think about a lot of different things, not just with the classroom itself, but, you know, reading, writing workshop and the other types of facilitated experiences that I see going on in, in other classrooms or that we want to see going on in other types of classrooms. You know, for years, we've been preaching this idea of student-centered learning, but time after time, I visit school after school, and that happens in pockets. There are some teachers that get it. There are some teachers that don't. And when we look at how we're truly going to make those shifts, we really do have to incorporate those future-ready skills. And I think that's where technology comes in. When I teach about using writing tools and technology, I'm often talking about the importance of learning how to write with technology because students in this day and age, have to know how to do it, even though sometimes they're more comfortable and a lot of adults are more comfortable, you know, pen to paper. But learning how to interact with those and use those tools, that's something that's going to be needed in the workforce. And so I want to see that in the classroom. And in terms of the actual view inside this perfect classroom or almost perfect classroom, I think it would vary teacher to teacher because I believe that the teacher's personality and strengths and weaknesses definitely come into play and that every teacher is going to have a slightly different way to maximize these tools in their classroom. As I tell people, if you've ever seen Dave Burgess give a keynote or imagine him in the classroom, not every teacher is going to have the style that Dave Burgess mm -hmm. has. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you think about that type of of level, you know, same thing. If I'm on stage, I'm going to maximize what I'm good at. And if I'm in a classroom and if I'm a teacher working with my middle school students, I'm going to work the things that I know how to work. And in that, that reading writing workshop or just the writing workshop, I definitely see different types of devices being ideal. Not that every student is on the same device at the same time, because we want to incorporate a lot of the collaboration, both face-to-face, -face, as well as students understanding and learning how to collaborate online. You know, I feel like in my classroom, that was really hard to model and to teach, and it still is, that we, we put kids together and think collaboration is magically going to happen, but it, it doesn't quite work that way. We have to help them learn how to reach towards those goals. So I want them working on those four C's. I want them communicating through their writing. I want them getting creative with their writing. I want them to think deeply and get into the critical thinking with their writing. 
And I also want to see that 21st century collaboration. And I want that interpreted in different types of mediums and media. And I want students to have multiple choices in what they do. So even though we may be working on some type of biography, what are the different ways that students can reflect and write about that? You know, how can we put that together in different styles and different genres and different mediums and blogs and multimedia projects and even in a podcast format? How can we bring all of those things into the classroom? Those, those are what I think of when I, when I imagine what, you, what you're saying, the, this ideal type of classroom. And, you know, just building off what you mentioned there, this idea that kids would still be doing substantive work. It's not like the one student that recorded the podcast and did an interview with a local history buff, um, you know, got some much more meaningful experience than the student who just decided to create the interactive kiosk in, you know, Google Slides or PowerPoint by bringing in some pictures from Wikipedia. The goal is that they would each be doing that substantive kind of learning, but representing it in different ways. And, and for me, at least, I think that's the challenge with technology is that it's, it's hard sometimes to know like, oh, well, it looks like this kid did a lot of good, thoughtful, critical thinking, and this kid did too. But until you really start conferring with the kid and actually having that conversation and finding out, well, what was your research? Where were your sources? How did you do this? How does this connect there? And it seems to me that maybe that's part of what would be happening in this ideal reading and writing workshop is that it would still be very much focused on the learning process and what the students were doing along the way, whatever media they decide to present their work in. Yes, exactly. And I think that, too, that that's why it's so important that our rubrics are designed to assess those things that you were just talking about. The rubric is not about the technology and how many slides you had and how many images you had, that it gets down to the actual learning, that those rubrics are tied to the learning goals and that they're not written for the teacher to grade. They're written for the student to learn. Yeah, well, I can certainly agree. Like, yes, when we're talking about, oh, it has to have this many slides or this many images or be this long or do this and that and the other thing then we do get caught up in those technicalities. And that's the easiest way for a student to say, oh, well, see, I did what you told me to and no more than what I needed. And we're really trying to get them to do is tackle these issues in a substantive manner and represent their ideas through various forms of media um, across their whole language arts experience. So, well, that's amazing. So I'm curious too, are are there, I'm sure dozens of course, but are there any particular assignments that you used in your own language arts classroom or maybe something you've heard about from another teacher that is doing this well? Like what is the, the prompt or the assignment or the strategy that really does seem to be getting students to use the technology in productive ways and create these robust types of projects. Is there anything that comes to mind as you're thinking about what you've seen in the past uh, few months or even over the last year? Oh, there's, there's so many tools out there, but one of the strategies that I share a lot and it's part of my framework is going beyond the walls. And one thing that I learned in my own eighth grade language arts classroom was 
I was the techie teacher, of course, and this was several years ago. This was way before we had Google Docs or anything. And I found this website where my kids could publish their writing and get comments from other people. And I thought, oh, we're going to do that tomorrow. And I didn't think about it. I didn't have any purpose to it. I was just just rolling with it because I wanted to use the tech. And something really interesting happened. Now, keep in mind, this was my eighth grade pre-AP class. So these were already the kids that were pretty much the teacher pleasers and generally turned their work in and did very good work. But as soon as they got a comment on that site, the hands started going up in the classroom. Miss Bell, Miss Bell, can I revise mine? I didn't know anyone was going to read it besides you. <laughs> I was like, I was like, whoa, okay, first of all, you know, knife to the heart, right? Like, mm-hmm. I thought I was your perfect audience. No, we are not. If we do not give students an audience for their work, and if at all possible, an authentic audience, they're not going to reach their full potential. You know, the, the amazing thing was that kids cared so much more about the quality of what they were creating when they knew someone besides me was going to look at it. And that, to me, should be something that we keep in our minds for everything, not just writing, but everything that they do the fact that we have these tools at our fingertips. So there's, um, you know, hundreds of tools that do these types of things. And we have the ability to do this without any risk to privacy or safety. We don't have to publish names. We don't have to publish faces. In fact, it's kind of fun to give pen names and publish them. But to be able to do that is really going to help students see the value of what they share online past their own personal Snapchat use or whatever it is they're putting out there because they're going to be Googled before they get a job or get into college. And what are they going to find? I want them to find their digital footprint. I want them to find that they did some amazing work when they were in school. Absolutely. Well, and I think the point there that you just made, and again, bringing this back to a National Writing Project principles, like we, we have known for so long that if students do not have some kind of an audience, then the fact is they're just doing it for the teacher and for a grade. And that's not necessarily the best reasons that we would have for them to be writers. So... So as we come to a close here, and you've already talked a little bit about this, but I wonder if you might reflect just a little bit more um, as you think more broadly, uh, personally and professionally, and even if a lot of your writing is professional writing, can you just talk a bit more about the role of writing in your life and what it means for you to be an educator who writes? Um, And again, across so many forms of media, I think that that's got to Uh, speak to the way that you see yourself as a writer too. So I'd really be curious to hear more about that. It is. It's, it's very interesting because I don't often call myself a writer, even though I've, you know, published a book and a blog and written many articles, but I don't, I don't, I don't know why I just don't, don't give myself that, that label very often. And I think it's that's more of an insecurity of my own. And I think a lot of teachers do that too. And I think that's part of the reason why so many are are more reluctant to get out there and share. But I see the power of of writing that it how it helps me learn. I learn every time I put a blog post together as I'm piecing it, I'm asking the questions, I'm thinking about my audience. What questions are they gonna have? How can I help them? And putting that 
form out there in the text format. But what's been interesting is I have been podcasting for a while with the Google Teacher Tribe, but the ShakeUp Learning podcast just came out in March. And my Mm -hmm. goal with that was to have a podcast version of what I do on the blog. And that has been an interesting shift. Sometimes it's really easy to put together and sometimes it's not. And so sometimes I create the blog post by listening to myself. I listen to what I recorded and what I talked about. And a lot of people do that as writing anyway, right? You get out your recorder and you just start talking. You just start getting out those ideas. And sometimes that's, that's how we put things together and thinking about that voice and, and what we can share and sharing things in different mediums, whether that's on you know a YouTube video or on Twitter in 200 and 280 characters, 240 characters, whatever it is, <laughs> yeah, that, we're, that we're is also a, a challenge, right? You know, that's in fact a, an exercise you can do with students, even if you're not really using Twitter, but to have a conversation or to summarize what they're reading into something that can be read in 240 characters or less is a real challenge. And a lot of people <laughs> can't do it. They still have to, you know, one of two, two of three, et cetera. So there's, there's different ways to think about it. My mother, who writes more creative stories, she writes fiction and has always been on, why don't you write a novel? And my brain just doesn't go there. I, <laughs> I struggled that, with that as a, as a writer in school when I had to, to write more creatively. And I think I have been in this genre for so long that it really... I, I can't think about anything but reality. <laughs> so that's that, you know, that practical I, idea, that voice is just part of everything I do, whether I'm giving a workshop face to face or I'm standing and delivering a keynote or putting it into a book or a blog or a podcast. It's, it's the same voice. And I feel like the fact that I have this audience that's so supportive and that understands, you know what, we're, we all make mistakes. We, we all, you know, I'll have a slide up there that has a big spelling error on it. We're going to talk about it and we're going to laugh about it because that's reality. And I love the fact that we have the ability to give our students so many different types of audiences now, kind of circling back to what I was talking about earlier. I remember teaching those writing assignments, okay, you're going to pretend that you're writing a persuasive essay to a group of NASA experts to take on your project. And it would never fail. I would always have a student come up, but Miss Bell, aren't you the one reading it? Like they couldn't wrap their head around a writing assignment that was for a specific audience because I couldn't give them that audience. And so this allows us to do so many different things and to reach different audiences. And I feel like I can even sometimes reach into different types of educational audiences with, with what I write and how I write it. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Oh, it does. Okay. And as, as a person who would claim to be a nonfiction writer himself, hearing you make that mention of, yeah, it's hard to write stories and poems. I fully agree. And when I stand up and say, yes, I'm a writer, I, I get what you're saying. There, there are certain you know, styles and genres and ways of thinking that we all represent better. And I really respect people that can write 
creatively in poetry and you know novels and even journalists who are able to weave together stories in really effective ways and that all resonates yep but i i really do appreciate the point that you made that it's your same voice whether you're leading a keynote presentation whether you're writing a blog post whether you're creating a script for a podcast you you feel like you've really embodied your own voice and you can do that whether it's in 280 characters or in 25 minutes of a podcast, uh, it's still you. And I think that's what matters. And what's been really interesting as a podcaster, and I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but as someone who went from blogging and then podcasting, people identified with me in a completely different way once they heard mm-hmm. It, it was a different type of connection. And so I think we have to keep that in mind for learning as for creating, you know, that, that students will make those connections as well. And they'll be able to create and share in those ways as well. You know, I've had so many people who will come see me for the first time at a conference, but they've been listening to one of my podcasts and are like, it, it just, you sound like you're my best friend because I listen to you all the time. Or you go on my run with me and they say all these things. And it can sound a little creepy, but it's not creepy, but it's just that they've identified with me in a different way. And that was something that was very unexpected that I got from podcasting. And of course, then people pick up on the Texas accent and everything else that comes through, but they, they get a different side of your personality than just the voice that, that you can have in your own writing. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the work that you do and so glad that we had the opportunity to talk today. Thanks for all that you do for our profession. And I hope that we can continue the conversation, be it through Twitter or blog posts or at a conference presentation. Thanks so much for your time today, Casey. Oh, thank you for having me. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.